0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome in on a Wednesday night here on your home for the St. Louis Blues 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario sitting in for Chris Kerber this evening, and I'm excited about this one tonight. Of course, we've done a series over the last few weeks during this pandemic profiling different members of the St. Louis Blues organization, people who have had influences on the St. Louis Blues hockey growth, and the man tonight we're going to talk to is a man who is the third most winningest coach in the National Hockey League, 849 victories, 248 of those were with the St. Louis Blues. He spent six seasons as the head coach. He went to the playoffs in five of those. A Jack Adams winner and a Stanley Cup champion, he is Ken Hitchcock. Ken, how are you tonight, sir, and how is the family doing?
1: Well, we're doing well. Uh, I'm actually up in Canada. Uh, I have a small place in, in the Palm Springs area and a place up in Canada, so uh, it's a little less hot up here, and so up here with family and things are uh, things are pretty good.
0: Yeah, you know exactly what that humidity like was in St. Louis. So you're probably glad to be in Canada, where you can enjoy the summertime, right?
1: Well, you are, but you know, I, I got to tell you, I really enjoyed it in St. Louis. I had, I met some great friends. Uh, uh, I lived in a terrific area. I, I was able to play golf at some of the greatest golf courses in the, in, the, in the United States, and it was all within 15 or 20 minutes of my house, and it was a, it was a very comfortable place to live, and there, there's a lot of uh, uh, great sports fans, not just hockey, but sports in general. A lot of great sports fans in St. Louis,
0: I'll tell you. That, that probably didn't surprise you, though, Ken, from your time in hockey. I mean, you, you've you crossed paths with a lot of people who have played in St. Louis, went to St. Louis, worked in St. Louis. And it seems to be the consistent testament about being a part of the St. Louis Blues or just being in St. Louis that it's a place you just really never want to leave because you get so comfortable.
1: Well, I think there's a real sense of community there. And I think it permeates through the players, managers coaches owners you know it's a locally owned team uh tom stillman's been heavily involved even uh, when he was uh, when i was just there at the start um and it's uh it's run for all the good all the right reasons and i i think it's uh it's got a very loyal following just like the baseball team does and uh i i think it it just speaks volumes uh how long and how loyal the support's being there for the Blues.
0: Well, that's great. And we're excited to talk with that about you, Kim. But I'm curious, what's this pandemic been like for you? I know you're a busy man throughout the hockey season and throughout the summertime being a part of different uh, elements throughout hockey in your career. Uh, What's this been like of just not having anything?
1: Well, I think from a coaching standpoint, it's really hard to watch everything that's on television when you already know what the score is. And (laughs) I'm really looking forward to watching some sporting event that you don't know what's going to happen at the end. You know, so all these reruns and repeats, we're going to be finally done with them by the 1st of August. The second part for me is I've learned all this new technology, podcasts, Zoom, <laughs> uh, all this stuff, and, and I've been lucky. We, we've we set up a sense of community with a lot of coaches on Zoomcast three times a week. Uh, I've, I've worked with military uh, people a couple times a week on Zoomcast, and it's been a, a, a real fascinating journey on kind of learning uh, how this younger generation coaches, behaves, conducts themselves. And I found it to be really, really interesting. But, but the one thing I miss is turning on the television or being able to go to a sporting event and not know what's going to happen and that anxiousness, And that energy that goes with that I really miss that,
0: to be honest with you. Yeah, there's no question. And I think everybody's anticipating, highly anticipating that with everything that's been going on and those repeats. I, I can't blame you with that one, Hitch. It's just getting to the point where you're, you're so sick of seeing the same outcome. But, you know, you, you talked about kind of the evolution of coaching and what you're seeing and with your talking with people and the new technology. So that kind of gives me this. And what we've been doing here, Hitch, is just kind of profiling just the careers of people in hockey. And, you know, I want to, you just a fascinating path because I got to cover you for a few years in St. Louis as you were the head coach. Just a fascinating path to to get into the game of hockey as a head coach. So, if you would, would you take uh, some of our listeners back to what got you into falling in love with hockey?
1: Well, Alex, my father was a coach and um I I remember following my dad around when I was 5 years old. He he was he coached uh junior, he coached uh midget and juvenile juvenile was a, a seventeen and eighteen year old league so i i been i've been, I, I've been uh, connected to coaching uh, for a very very long time and I was always uh, interested in the strategy and the technical part of the game and so i I've, I've been while other people follow players i followed coaches i i i Followed Scotty and Al Arbour, uh, Tommy Ivan, uh, Rudy Pillas, all kinds of guys that that were coaches and uh, their the, the way they did things and their mannerisms and everything. I I ended up following those guys closer than I did players. I still had my favorite players, but I I was more interested in in watching coaches and then. When I uh, stopped playing, I, uh, two years later, the same group that I was playing with was still playing, and they wanted somebody to come and help them. And I, I went on the ice, and I fell in love with running drills. And and uh, so then I started following all the college coaches in Canada, and that kind of got me interested in, in doing this for a career. And I would have never thought I would get as far as I did. Uh, I had a lot of people helping me along the way, but... But I had made a decision when I was twenty, twenty one years of age that I wanted a career in coaching in some form.
0: Was there a point in your career of coaching up to that or even when you started to get into the uh you know, the the junior level coaches, was there a point, Hitch, where it felt like, you know what, this is a possibility that I could make this a career?
1: Well, Alex, I, I found for me the I I worked for a sporting goods firm, a large sporting goods firm in Edmonton, and I found that sales and being a salesperson in sporting goods was a lot like coaching. You had to convince people to buy your product, uh, and you had to convince them with your belief. And I, I was successful in that venue, and I felt like I could... Transition that into coaching. I felt like I could sell people to make sacrifices for the good of the team. I thought I could convince people that they were capable of even more than they thought. And I felt comfortable doing that stuff. And so the transition from working full time to coaching felt smoother for me because I felt like even when I was at work, I was coaching people. <laughs>
0: Did that feel like it was an easy transition for you, Hitch, to where you could to where you could sell the the love of the game to players or you could motivate players through through your history of working in the sales sales business before really hockey took over?
1: Yeah, I did. I I, I found for me I the coaching the transition into coaching was smooth for me. The transition into lifestyle, uh meaning that when all of a sudden I was doing it for a living when I went to Camloops in junior, I found very challenging because it was, uh, um, you know, I I coached as a hobby and then all of a sudden I was coaching and that was my job. And I had to learn to be comfortable when you were your your job and your livelihood was out front based on your record and you didn't have a full-time job forever and you could get fired and you might get fired and i had to learn to live in that environment because it was always just a sport and a game uh and a recreation for me and never and 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 was done just like a lot of volunteer coaches do it now and then all of a sudden when my life, livelihood was on the line, it was a different type of pressure and a different type of stress.
0: And I always found it so interesting when you talked about this in St. Louis Hitch. And A lot of people know that, that you're, a, you're a history buff. You're a Civil War buff. But you used to talk all the time of how you would read plenty of books about the Civil War and about history and about military tactics. On top of you'd read books from other coaches in different sports like in football or basketball or baseball. And you would find ways to attribute that into the game of hockey.
1: Yeah, for me, Alex, I, I always felt like I didn't have background as a player. So I, I stopped playing when I was 18 years old, and I didn't have the background that other guys did. They they, they were pro players or college players. And if I was going to be successful, I, I felt I had to be the most learned guy out there. So I, I was uh, vociferous in my learning as far as uh, what I could do to help motivate the players, what I could help – to inspire them, how I could get them engaged, uh, how I could get them to make sacrifices. I felt like I didn't have the knowledge that you get from just being a player. And I had to gain that knowledge to gain the trust of the players. So that was the journey I went on was I tried to make myself as learned as I can. I tried to engage in as many symposiums and conferences and institutes so that I could catch little tidbits of information that would helped me give an edge that I didn't have with not being a player.
0: Did you find yourself learning more and more when you were around the players, even at the junior level, Hitch, of being around these younger guys and then going into the minor leagues and going into the NHL, learning more about tactics when you were around different types of personalities?
1: Yeah, Alex, for me, I, I felt like I learned as much as I thought I knew. I learned 10 times more from being around winners. And what I mean by that is Doug Jarvis, Bob Gainey, Bob Clark, Bill Barber, um, players like that. Being around winners really helped me become a better coach because I I started to understand uh, how far you could go with a player, um, how deep you had to go to be a champion, how much effort and discipline, and desire it took to be a winning team. I learned a lot from those guys and they to me, getting to work for guys like Gainey and Clark uh and these guys and getting to work with other coaches who had success as players I thought brought my coaching game to another level.
0: Yeah, well, you were around that winning atmosphere immediately once you got into the NHL, and we're going to talk about that. Ken Hitchcock is our guest tonight here on Behind the Bench, former St. Louis Blues head coach, the third most winningest coach in the National Hockey League. We're going to take a quick break and come back with more of Ken Hitchcock next here on 101 ESPN. Back in here on a Wednesday night, we are talking with Ken Hitchcock, the former St. Louis Blues head coach, and he's got 849 victories in the National Hockey League. And Hitch, we're going to go back in time a little bit. I want to go back to, uh, to, to when you found out that you were going to be in the NHL um, as a head coach with the Dallas Stars. I don't know if people know this, but you started out as an assistant coach in Philadelphia, but that first shot as being a head coach, was, was there, were, there, were there nerves going into it at that time, or, or did it not feel as much nervous as it just felt like confidence, this was my time?
1: Well, I think what really helped me, Alex, was I knew the players because I coach. I was coaching their farm club in Kalamazoo, so when when the stars were at training camp, I was around them all the time at training camp. So I had a relationship with a lot of the players, um, and I went in there, quite frankly, very confident. I felt that the style that we were playing in Kalamazoo could transition into dallas and i got a rude awakening in a big way quickly um i was a big believer in the oilers way of playing the oilers style of game and we had enough personnel in kalamazoo to play that way a lot of those guys ended up playing for dallas over the time but we didn't have the personnel to play that way when i went to dallas and i had to change and adjust and i had two coaches rick wilson and doug jarvis who convinced me that there was a different way to play based on personnel. And it's the first time in my life that I had to fit a system to the personnel. I'd always fit the personnel to the system. And it was the first time I'd ever had to do that. And I can't thank those two guys enough because they convinced me to change. They convinced me to make an, an, an adaption to the game I believed in. And we were able to have success right away because of that.
0: Was that difficult in terms of evolving into that? Because, I mean, you had spent your entirety of coaching up to that point of doing what you said, building the player into the system, and having to just twist that around that fast. It couldn't have been an easy process, could it?
1: Well, quite frankly, it was easier for the players than it was for me because I came from a system that was all attack, almost like, in basketball it would be like a full court press and that's the way we played that's the way i coached that's what i believed in and and then i had to adapt to a system that was based on counterattacking and patience and um, it it was a it was a at times for me frustrating but when i saw the success it created um, i saw how good it could be and uh, I embraced it, but I came from an attitude was we were going to blow you out early. We were going to attack you early. And if you weren't ready, we were going to swamp you. Mm -hmm. And then I developed it. We developed into a patient system where we played, uh, with the game tied a lot. And we knew that if we, we played this way that we could make, we could bleed you out. And, um, uh, I had to make adjustments, so I had to become a much better, more patient coach in order to coach this way. And I think learning to adapt really helped me along the way because I, I, I found, I found that you had to put a system in place that fit your personnel and not jam your personnel into your system.
0: Well, and especially in the NHL, Ken, if that that. Uh you have to have a roster that can do that, correct? Like there has to be different types of personalities that can adapt in that way so that they can make that system work. Does that go into the decision process of where a coach wants to be in terms of looking at that roster? Because at the time, you know, Dallas has a Darian Hatcher. They have a Joe Nuendike, They have a Mike Madano. They have these players in the system that you feel like as a coach, I can adapt to this.
1: Yeah, but I, I it, it was more the role players that we were asking too much from. We had a really smart team. We had good players, but other teams had good players. But our hockey intelligence was unbelievable. And we needed, to, we needed to play a very positionally intelligent game. And, you know, we weren't the quickest team, but, man, we had a lot of smart players. And I had to learn to let those guys become factors in the game. So we, we engineered our system to the bottom part of our lineup, the last six forwards and the last three defensemen, in order for us to be successful, and it, it worked. We, we played the same way for my six or seven years there in Dallas, and, and the system really worked.
0: Yeah, it definitely did. Again, we're we're talking with Ken Hitchcock, a former St. Louis Blues head coach, and of course, uh, head coach of the Dallas Stars when he started his career. Uh, Hitch, I'm curious. Uh, growing up in, in in Canada, growing up in Edmonton, of course, you're you're very familiar with the sport of hockey. And Bob Gainey uh, was a legend in Montreal and overall in the sport of hockey. What was that like for you as a young head coach, getting your first shot, having a Bob Gainey? Uh, kind of overseeing everything and, and pr- preceding him base, or, succeeding him, base, basically as the head coach of the Dallas Stars?
1: Alex, for me, it was like having a professor in your pocket every day. And what I mean by that is that I had a guy that could see around corners that I was working for. So when I would try something, he, he knew where it was going to go. And he could tell me very confidently, if you go this direction, this is what you can expect you go this direction, you're going to expect something different. And that really helped me. I felt like my whole time in Dallas and the same thing in Philadelphia, I had a leg up on everybody because I, I worked for two men that knew exactly what it took to win. They knew what it, what winning looked and smelt like. And uh, they were able to bring the best out in me because we had a great relationship Uh Myself with 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 both bobs and um, and I was able to pick their brain on a daily basis and they it, there's nothing more valuable than working for a person that knows what the end game is and can help you along the way and, and I I was able to do that my first uh, 12 years in the NHL. I was working for two guys that could see right around every corner.
0: Having that in the back pocket, Hitch, did that help with that transition from the first to second year? Because, of course, the first year it was mid-season with the Dallas Stars, but then the next year was when you make the playoffs and success kind of kicked in immediately. And as you talked about a little bit ago, transitioning from the system that you were accustomed to as a coach, having those guys in the back pocket had to have helped with that quick transition into winning.
1: No, for sure. We we didn't make a lot of changes in Dallas. We, you know, New didn't come in until I think the second or third year. Um, so we went to camp with pretty much the same personnel, maybe three changes, and um, and we went from last place to first place. And when when uh, the players saw the change in the system and the change in the way we were going to play, uh, that they could have success with it. Um, our whole mindset changed. And so the same people were having career years that had difficulty the year before. And, um, you know, I, 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 I can't say this enough. I was working with some really wise people and they, they really, really helped me a lot. And then once the belief system was transported back into the players, then, it became a really strong partnership for a number of years.
0: What was that like for you, Hitch, uh, being in the NHL, around these people that you've spent so much time admiring, and, and I'm talking more about the coaches' side, and especially being in Dallas, being in the same conference as the Detroit Red Wings, and Scotty Bowman on the other side. And I know you coached against them in the conference finals that second year um, that, you, uh, that you guys went into the playoffs with the Dallas Stars. Uh, what was that like for you, kind of being around an idol for you?
1: I, I was never awestruck by the players. I really admire the players, Alex. I really think... I really respect the players. Anybody that's played in the league, anybody that's played for me, I really admire and respect. But I was in awe of some of the coaches. I was in awe of some of these guys that had been there for years and had success. And um, But it was a really close shop. You didn't dare talk to another coach like you can now. You didn't dare visit with a guy... You didn't dare, you know, have a quick coffee with them. You were in your own world, and you stayed in your own world. It's a different area now, and so there was no camaraderie between the coaches that there is now. And uh, uh, you you were in your own little uh, bunker, and you stayed there. And so for me, I was one of the new guys on the scene, and it was a little intimidating at times to be honest with you, because uh, um, I was around a lot of veteran coaches, and I was—I uh, I had really admired some of these guys.
0: It seems like that would be—it's it, it, like a completely different strategy now in hockey, isn't it, Hitch, where where you see these coaches talking to each other and they're, they're, they're kind of feeding each other different opinions and advice of growing the game and growing their skill set. It has to be an intimidating factor playing in that era to where, I mean, you really couldn't talk to anybody on the other side because it was your bubble and that was it.
1: Yeah, you, you couldn't disclose anything. So, you know, and what, what, what changed now is all the symposiums and everything. Guys are in the same symposiums. You know, they're speaking to the same groups of people. But the sharing of information was frowned upon. And and it was a very uh, tight ship. And nobody, like, we, thinking the words growing the game wasn't part of our vocabulary like it is now. <laughs> we didn't think like that. It was win. Uh, have success and 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 keep your own group away from the other team and um, you know you didn't see players talking before games to each other. there was no visiting on the red line um, you certainly never said anything to the coach. you might nod at the guy, but that's about it <laughs> and now it's a shared environment because there's a bigger landscape it's it is about growing the game it is about bringing more people on board and and I think a lot of it is because, too, we've all been in these Olympic and World Cup and World Championship programs together, so you build a friendship when you're working with the same staff. But even as, uh, and this hasn't changed, uh, this hasn't been, a, this has been a recent change because it really started to change in 2009. Um, so it's only been 10 or 11 years that this this sharing of information has been adapted to, and and being uh, promoted now before really up until 2009, you shared nothing with nobody.
0: Did that kind of hit you like a brick then if you're a head coach and you've been in the league this long of not sharing information and not speaking with the competition, so to speak. And then all of a sudden you got guys talking to each other. Did they kind of surprise the hell out of you at the time?
1: Um, No, but I, I, I give guys like Mike Babcock a lot of credit for changing that environment. he, He started to change that environment in 2010 when we were in the Olympics together. And I think it's kind of everybody's embraced that mindset. So Mike to me was the first guy that just put everything on the table. And, you know, I was surprised to learn some of the stuff that he was teaching. And I quite frankly copied some of it. He copied stuff from me, (laughs) but in the end, it helped us become better coaches, but you weren't comfortable sharing anything. And I know Mike, had to go way out of his way to get us as a staff to share, but at the end it really helped everybody.
0: So, Hitch, one more before we take a break. I'm I'm curious uh, that that Stanley Cup championship run with the Dallas Stars. Did you could you see a Stanley Cup? championship caliber team throughout that regular season, and what was that postseason like for you? Because you started with Edmonton, a team that you grew up, grew up watching, and then of course the St. Louis Blues. That You have Brett Hall, the former St. Louis Blues, making your way all the way through the Buffalo Sabres.
1: I actually thought we were going to win the year before in 98 when we lost to Detroit. Um, but it was a very interesting dynamic, Alex. There was three teams at the top of the heap in the West, for six years, Colorado, Dallas, and and Detroit, and we couldn't beat Detroit. Detroit couldn't beat Colorado, and Colorado couldn't beat us. So whoever lined up against each other in the playoffs, you got zinged. And um, um I, I felt that we were ready the year before, and and Bob Gainey said to me, uh. Don't forget what happened in this conference final against Detroit when we lost out. He said, because that's – Scotty got his team to another gear that our players couldn't handle, and you need to push for that next gear. And so for the next two or three years, we really pushed for that next gear. And I, I was very I, – I just thought winning the Cup with the way we were evolving was inevitable. I was really proud of my team the following year – when we lost in the final because that was all on desire and guts. We had nothing left in the tank and our guys just refused to quit. So, I was happy to win the Stanley Cup, but I was really proud of the team the next year.
0: Yeah, you talk about an incredible three-year push going to the conference finals, Stanley Cup champions, and then making it all the way to the finals. That's Ken Hitchcock, the former St. Louis Blues head coach. He's with us here on Behind the Bench. I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll take a break. We're going to come back and talk about Hitch's time in St. Louis next here on your home for the St. Louis Blues 101 ESPN. We're back in here on a Wednesday night with the former St. Louis Blues head coach, Ken Hitchcock, on behind the bench. Alex Ferrario sitting in for Chris Kerber this evening. So Hitch, uh, in our opening segment, you talked a little bit about, you know, having to come to terms and having to understand, you know, what being fired was like in this business because it was it was inevitable. It was going to happen at some point, but you went through it three different times before you got that call for the St. Louis Blues, was the mindset still there? Was the fire still burning to be a head coach when the Columbus Blue Jackets let you go?
1: Uh, Yeah, I was. And and quite frankly, um, I had been in discussions with two other teams and was in the middle of both discussions when Doug called. But when Doug called, because we'd been together for so long, you know ten years in the Dallas organization, I dropped everything, and um, as a matter of fact, when he called, uh, four hours later, I was in a car driving down to St. Louis. Wow. and um, I, I made calls two calls on the car ride to tell the other teams I was out and um, I, I went, when Doug called I, I just couldn't I couldn't turn it down.
0: What was that conversation like with Doug Armstrong, Hitch? I mean, of course, Doug was was fairly new in terms of being the general manager on his own with the St. Louis Blues, and it was a Blues team that was really struggling to find their way into the playoffs. I believe they only made the playoffs once in their six-year span before you got there. What was that conversation like with Doug? (laughs)
1: Um, He called on Saturday morning, early Saturday morning, and – we were just talking, and I, he was at. He was saying, have, you know like how are you doing?" And we talked about the NHL. He was saying, "Have you seen our team play?" And I said, "Yeah, I saw them play a couple of games." And he said, "Yeah," and he said, "You know like we're something's missing," and going from there. And then he just said, "Oh, I gotta go." So that was it. <laughs> that was in the morning. And I I went home, and I said to my wife, I said. I'm not sure, but I, I think I did an interview. But I'm not really <laughs> sure. And then, then, he, then he called back at noon. And I said, did you just interview me? He said, yeah. He said, you want, you, you want a coach? I said, yeah, I want a coach. He said, well, then I need a coach. Get your ass down here. So that's what I did. I jumped in the car. Four hours later, I packed three suitcases and drove down. And I was on the ice the next day with the team. And um, But it was... The transition for me was easy because it was Doug, and um, and I knew JD, uh, John Davidson. He was one of my heroes when he was playing junior hockey. Uh, I knew a lot of people in the organization, um, you know. So uh, on the personnel side of things, and it was it was easy. But because it was Doug there and and JD. The transition for me and getting comfortable was real quick.
0: I was going to ask, does that familiarity with, with people that are the, the, the higher-ups in the organization, does that give you a comfort level going into that organization of being a head coach?
1: Alex, everything in being a head coach is your relationship with the people above you. Managing up is the most important thing of being a head coach. And having the person above you that you trust and respect and does the same for you is critical. You know at the end of the day someday you're going to get fired, but that respect is really healthy. And I had respect for Doug for a long time. We won a lot of games together with the Dallas organization, not just in Dallas, but Doug was responsible for Kalamazoo, and we had a ton of success there. And I felt like I had a guy I could trust every day and um, so if if I was vulnerable that day or if I couldn't solve a problem I had no problem sharing it with Doug.
0: that's incredible so with all of that being said Hitch and you looked at that roster as coming in as the head coach and again I mentioned it the Blues had missed the playoffs for five of the six seasons before you got there did you see the possibility and the opening for success with that team
1: um, I didn't know about the success, but I knew as soon as I got on the ice and as soon as I talked to the players, um, it, man, it was a hungry group that wanted to learn, and it was a really hungry group, and they wanted information. They couldn't get enough information. They wanted to turn it around. They wanted the responsibility to turn it around, and we turned it real quick. And um, But their hunger to learn and their hunger to – want the information on what to do to get better was right there, right off the bat. You had David Backus, Alex Steen, Petro. You had a group of players that were so hungry. Barrett Jackman. They just said, you tell us what to do and we'll make it accountable in the room and we'll get it done. So it was, I don't want to say it was easy coaching, but it was a very, very receptive group right from day one.
0: Do you find... That it is easier, though, Hitch, with a, with a group of younger players that are hungry, that are fresh, rather than coaching a group of maybe, say, veteran players who have been in the league a long period of time?
1: Well, I find it doesn't matter their age. It's are they willing to accept responsibility for their own actions and not blame it on the previous coach? And if the players are willing to do that, then you, that's like gold and you can make headway right away. And these players, they weren't blaming anything on Davis or his staff. They just said, it wasn't working. We need a new style. We need something to change. And so fresh ideas came forward and they embraced them. And we took off right away.
0: Well, in those first four seasons, uh, of course, you're making the playoffs and and you're running into essential Stanley Cup champions where you played against the L.A. Kings a couple of years. You played against the Chicago Blackhawks the one year that they won. But in your eyes, did you start to see kind of a turn of the tide with some of those players in terms of, you know, that uh, that that understanding of playoff hockey and and realizing that they have the ability to take and, and win those games?
1: Well, I, I know this is probably a bizarre thing to say, but I really feel like we could have won two cups. Wow. And, and what I mean by that is that um, we, for my, in my view, we were the better team, uh, but I, 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 I had learned the lesson from Ed Belfour on how valuable goaltending was, and I thought that in one, in one series, Quick stole it, and in another series, Crawford stole it because I thought we were the better team. I thought we were much better than they were. And I, I go to my grave thinking that. I thought our players gave everything they had, but you're going to at times run into a goaltender that stands on his head, and, that, and, and you're going to need goaltenders to win series. And I thought that's what those guys did. They won the series. We weren't outplayed. Uh, we were the better team. Um, and I, I, I'm sure teams that played us in Dallas, felt the same thing, that they were just as good or better than us. But we had Eddie Belfour, and Belfour won us a couple of series that maybe we didn't deserve to win. And one of them, quite frankly, was against St. Louis in 1999. We were not the better team, but we had Belfour, and he was better than anybody on the ice, and he won that series for us. And I thought... That's exactly what we ran into
0: in St. Louis. Well, and you started to see that evolution with those players, too, Hitch, of the confidence on the ice. And uh, I specifically remember, you know, after being bounced in that first round against the Chicago Blackhawks, everyone's sitting there thinking, boy, what's wrong with this team? They just can't get past that first round. But it was that off season where T.J. Oshie was traded and they brought in Troy Brower with some veteran leadership. And that was the season, of course, that your team made it all the way to the conference finals you could see the, the confidence growing of all of those players on the ice that specific season.
1: Yeah, I thought the big difference in that season was that uh, our leaders had really grown into strong leaders. I thought you saw the maturity in their game, the desire and determination, whether it was Petro, David Backus, Alex Steen. Um, adding Jay mokko was a huge advantage for us. I just thought you you saw a lot of uh, you know, good hockey players become mature hockey players, and I, I think you can see how much they've all grown. They've all grown, and they've become terrific leaders for the Blues already.
0: Yeah, well, and specifically Alex Petrangelo, Hitch, you know, you were around when he was named the captain, of course, when David Backus left in free agency, and everyone talked about, you know, can Petro be the captain? They thought there are other players that should have been the captain, but when you look at what Petro was when you first got to St. Louis and what he is now, does that surprise you at all of his evolution of play?
1: No, not at all. I, 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 I even think he's got another gear that's still not there yet, and I... I just think he's one of the best players in the world at being able to eat up good minutes. He he plays the toughest minutes of anybody in the National Hockey League, and he eats them all up. He plays number one power play. He kills the, he's, he's first out killing penalties. He plays against the other team's best players. He's on the first matchup. You get a player like that, and can still play 25 to 26 minutes a night. That's like gold. And every team is just crying for players like him.
0: You know, so many people. Hitch, talk about, you know, what, what, what defines good leadership in the sport of hockey. You know, is it, uh, is it the letters on jerseys? Is it guys who are aged veterans? Or is it, you know, like a, a young player like a Jonathan Taves who comes into the league? I'm curious because you've seen it all in terms of captains and leadership, you know, voices in the room. What does lead to successful leadership in a hockey club?
1: You've got to have people who can raise their level when it's all on the line. You got to have people great leaders they don't have to say anything they don't have to speak up they just got to do it and when you have people on your team that are capable of raising their level they drag other people with them and that's what Jonathan does that's what Alex does that's that's what great leadership is they they don't have to say anything they just play at a level that forces you to get dragged along in their wake
0: With that being said and seeing the Blues do what they did last season, Ken, and, and making that run to the Stanley Cup after starting off so slow in the season, and, of course, you having the knowledge and the experience of, of coaching a majority of those players, what did that mean to you?
1: Well, for first of all, I was really happy for Doug and his staff. Um, a lot of those guys are close personal friends, and I was really happy for them. And then the 17 or 18 players that played when i was there i was really happy for them in a different way because i saw them appreciate the value of all the hard work that they put into it and all the growth that they had to go through to get what they wanted and i was really proud for them because all of a sudden it validated everything that they they were asked to do both by myself and and craig and his staff and it's fun to watch that. It's fun to watch the joy in people's faces because I've gone through it myself. Um, and you're, you're part of the building blocks. To me, it's not just about Ken Hitchcock. It's about the guys that coached with me, Brad Shaw, uh, Kirk Muller, Gary Agnew, those type of people. I was happy for them too, because they were part of this growth also. And I know that Doug acknowledged us and, um, he, he, We saw the same thing when the Stars won. Bob went out of his way to acknowledge people that were there before we got there.
0: Yeah, that just that just dignifies great leadership all the way through the organization. And one person I know, Hitch, that uh, you were really happy for was uh, Craig Berube, and this was a player that you coached um, in the WHL. This was a, a somebody who you have had plenty of experiences with in the National Hockey League, and he was somebody that he talked, or you were somebody that Craig talked to so much about of having a major influence on his career in in hockey and in coaching.
1: Yeah, well, Craig went through the wall for me as a player. And he he his career got off to a rocky start. And fairly or unfairly, it doesn't matter. But he was in, in a tough spot. Um, and I really believed in him. And then getting him to go in and coach in the, in the American Hockey League was the best thing that he ever did for a different organization. And you saw his growth as a, as a coach. And, uh, and for him having success at the NHL level, I'm so happy for him because um, it validates for a lot of us that really believed in him as a coach and really believed that given the second or third chance, he could be very successful, and he's being that way.
0: Yeah, without question. That's Ken Hitchcock, former St. Louis Blues head coach. We're going to take our final break here on Behind the Bench, come back and throw a little quick hitters at Ken to get his thoughts on a couple of different areas in the NHL. We'll do that next as we wrap things up tonight here on your Home for the Blues 101 ESPN. Final time here with Ken Hitchcock, who has been gracious with his time this evening, and we appreciate that. It's great getting the chance to catch up with the former St. Louis Blues head coach. So, Hitch, uh, a wide range of knowledge I know in the National Hockey League. You've, You've been everywhere. You've done a lot. You've seen a lot. You've talked to so many different people. So I just want to throw a couple of quick hitters at you and get your thoughts on them. First things first, you talked a little bit about it in the show open, but in your opinion, who had the biggest influence on your career in the NHL?
1: Well, for sure, Bob Ganey. Um, Bob Bob, Bob was there through thick and thin for me, and uh, he had the patience. He saw something in me. He had the patience to stay with it, and I ended up having a long career because he stayed with me and allowed me to learn the lessons that you need to learn.
0: What about the toughest coach you coached against?
1: Oh, Scotty. Scotty could outchange you. Scotty... All the little things that you ask your players to do, Scotty's teams did them. And if you didn't, you look, it was embarrassing what he could do and how he got the players to commit. Um, and he was tough. He, if he wanted the matchup, road or home, he got it. And you couldn't run and hide from it. And he was... He was a very uh, stoic, determined coach on the bench.
0: Uh, you know, it's so funny, Hitch, when you watch through different games, and this is just from a fan's perspective, from somebody who does the pre- and post-games for the Blues, it seems like it's a chess match from high above the ice. When you're behind the bench as a coach and you're coaching against somebody like a Scotty Bowman, does it feel that way for you as well?
1: Yeah, you you got to be one or two shifts ahead all the time. So you got to know where players sit on the opposition bench when they're going to go out. You got to know who's popping his head up. You got to stay. You can't just be coaching the shift that you see. You got to be coaching the next shift. So understanding flow and rotations and uh, tendencies is really important as a coach.
0: What about the toughest player that you coached personally?
1: That I coached with or against?
0: That you coached with toughest player.
1: Well, I think your toughest players are always your best players, and and the reason for that is that um, your your best players you you know that their skill level is going to carry them so far because they're such they got such wonderful skill, but it's can you get them to embrace the details? Because when your best players embrace the details, you could win forever. So. They're the most rewarding. They're your best players, but they're also the most challenging. And when you can get your top players to buy into the details that everybody else has to, that is like gold, and that, that can help you win for a long, long time.
0: During your time coaching, Hitch, uh, what player sticks out to you in terms of having the highest uh, hockey IQ or hockey vision on the ice?
1: Oh, no question. Sergei Zuboff. Not even close. He saw things I couldn't even think about. Um, and he saw the ice. He saw the ice eighty feet in front of him, or fifty feet, or forty-five feet width-wise. Width I, 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 I couldn't believe some of the things he could do and think on the ice. It was amazing.
0: Did you ever have one of those moments where you where you talk to him about something you saw and he responds with, "Well, no, this is why I did." It's like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
1: <laughs> uh, not so much that, but you'd go. You'd be on the bench and you'd be thinking to yourself, what the hell is he trying to do there? Oh, good job. It's complete. Oh, it's in the net. You know, like you 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 couldn't believe some of the stuff he tried and then ninety percent of the time it was successful. He he had he knew angles and stick positioning and he knew tendencies. He he read the game at such an intellectual level, it was Almost intimidating to talk to him, to be honest with you.
0: Well, he might fall into this category, but uh, best defenseman in the league during your time coaching?
1: Uh, Chris Pronger. Chris was uh, intimidating everywhere, intimidating with his shot, with his physicality, his nastiness, his gamesmanship. And I had Chris uh, three times in the Olympics. We won two gold medals together. And any time the game was on the line, he could bring his game to another level that no one else could keep up to.
0: He seems like one of those players that would be so frustrating to frustrating to play a, or to coach against, but when he's on your team, it's like the best thing that could ever happen to you.
1: Well, the best part about Prongs is he says what everybody else is thinking. And that, that's the most valuable thing you could have inside your locker room.
0: What about the best team that you coached? Because, of, of course, you've coached a Stanley Cup championship team. You've coached some really good teams in St. Louis. But is there a team that sticks out to you?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. The um 4 Philadelphia Flyers, we were the best team in the National Hockey League by a mile at the end. Our team was playing unbelievable, and that's the team that lost in seven games to Tampa in the conference finals. And... We started the playoffs with 10 healthy defensemen. And when by the time we were playing uh, Tampa, I had Sammy Kapanen, who was a right winger, playing 22 minutes a night as a defenseman. Oh. And we, we had sustained seven significant injuries, and we still got it to seven games in that series. There was nobody, in my opinion, Alex, there was nobody close the way we were playing, there was nobody close to that team, and injuries are the only thing that could have gotten our way, and they got in our way.
0: Wow, that's incredible. What about uh, what about best goaltender that you coached?
1: Oh, Eddie's and, and uh, cut above. I I I haven't had a goaltender that can intimidate the opposition. I've you know I've coached against guys like Hassick and Waugh and these guys that can intimidate you but having a guy like Eddie Belfour in that um he could intimidate players into uh poor shot selections or whatever just because he got in people's heads he was just so competitive and so good
0: that's incredible Hitch, one more before we let you go and uh you know it, it's a, it's a much different era of hockey now compared to you know the 90s or the early 2000s uh but what do you think the biggest challenge for a head coach is from converting players kind of into this new era of hockey?
1: Well, Alex, it's a partnership now. You know, you've got to – it's a 50-50 partnership with the coach and the player. And the the coach has to understand that, that the player has to see it. what's what's in it for him personally before he's going to commit, and you need to embrace that mindset. Um, The authoritative figure of coaching is over. And you have to you have to really work hard on your partnership in order to get the players to succeed.
0: Do you feel like that ability is still there to to push the modern day player, kind of like what they used to be pushed as in the '90s in practices and in games?
1: Well, I know one thing: you you if you want to be a good team, you better be a great. Pra- There's never been a good team that's been a poor practice team. You better be a great practice team if you expect to have success. I know that for sure. But how you go about it is there's different manners in doing it now. You, you the players have to partner up with you in that they they got to understand and they, they got to look at a hard practice as a, as, a, as an element of respect for each other rather than punishment.
0: Hitch, I'm curious before we let you go, just your thoughts on this 2014 playoff format. What you think this uh, this wide open opportunity for a Stanley Cup is going to look like with 24 healthy teams?
1: This is uh, really on the coaches, to be honest with you. The guys that do the best job in getting their teams ready, inspiring their players to commit, keeping their teams locked and together. The the coaches that do the best job are going to be the coaches that are successful at the end.
0: Well, we're looking forward to this opportunity. Hitch, this has been a pleasure and an honor to get the chance to talk with you for this hour to just kind of get some behind-the-scenes thoughts, get your uh, kind of a profile look at your career in the NHL. And again, I only had a few few seasons covering you uh, when I was doing pre- and post for the St. Louis Blues, but it was truly an honor to get to see you coach in the NHL. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for, your, uh, for your answers with this one today, and I look forward to talking to you again down the road. All right. Thanks, bud. Take care. There you go. That's Former St. Louis Blues head coach, 894 victories in the NHL, the third most winningest head coach in the National Hockey League. And thank you for joining us tonight here on Behind the Bench. It was great to get the chance to catch up with Hitch. And if you miss any of our Behind the Bench shows, you can check them out on the 101ESPN website, 101ESPN.com, or you can look them up on the podcast wherever you get podcasts from. Big thank you to Mike Ryder as well for all of his help tonight. I'm Alex Ferrario. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you next week on Wednesday night for another edition of Behind the Bench here on your home for the St. Louis Blues 101 ESPN.